0: Good morning. Happy New Year. Good to be with you all this morning. I would be willing to bet that all of you that are homeowners out there probably have a project at home that's just waiting for you to be done, right? It's sitting there, and when you go by the tools or you go by the spot where it's supposed to happen, you cringe a little bit, you realize you need to take some time off or do whatever it, you need to do to get that project done, but you kind of just keep putting it off and putting it off. And we moved about a year and a half ago. There was a lot of projects that we did, and we had people help us do. And we got a lot of things done, but there was one project that I kept putting off. And for about a year, I had some bifold closet doors that just sat stacked up against the basement wall and I put them as far away from my sight as I could so that I didn't walk past them all the time and think, those bifold closet doors, I need to do something about that. So I put them out of sight, but the problem was, one of those closet doors was supposed to go in my room where my closet was. So every time I would go by my closet, I would see stacks and stacks of clothes and I would see piles of shoes, not Sarah's of course, but mine, piles of shoes everywhere, and I thought, huh, there needs to be a door here, so I don't have to look at all that stuff. But there was a couple things that were keeping me from this project. One, I'm not handy. So I knew this was going to take me a while. It wasn't probably going to look great when I was done. And so I already was, was kind of dreading the project just because of my lack of skill. Secondly, I had talked to some people that were handy, and they said, oh, bifold closet doors, those are tricky. And I was like, ah, Really? They're tricky. Okay, well that's not good for me. So I can go ahead and tack on a couple more days of time that it's going to take me to get these things done. And then on top of that, I had to paint all of them. So I had to have perfect weather outside so that I could paint one side of the doors and let them dry. So you can see as I'm going on here, I had a lot of excuses as to why I really didn't want to do this project and kept delaying it and delaying it and delaying it and putting it off. Well, eventually I had to get the project done, I had to take the time, I had to come up with a plan, I had to take the days off so that I could finally get this project complete. And you probably have some projects like that at your own house that are just waiting for you. And to leave a house project undone for a period of time, that's really a pretty small thing. It's bothersome to you probably as a homeowner, but it's really a small thing, especially in comparison with leaving spiritual matters undone. That is a much bigger thing. But maybe there's some spiritual projects or some things that God wants to do in your life or through you that you've been delaying. It might be some things like this, resolving a conflict. You know what God's word says about conflict. You know that Romans 12 says to live at peace with all people. You know that um, in the book of Matthew chapter 5 verse 24 it says, leave your gift at the altar." go be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift to God. You know all those things and you've got that little nagging chip on your shoulder that says you really need to reconcile with that person and maybe even think about it during communion or during times of prayer but it's hard and it's uncomfortable and so you just kind of put it off and don't do it. Maybe it's spending time in prayer for other people. I'm always struck by what Samuel said in 1 Samuel 12:23 when he said, that he would be sinning against God by not praying for wayward, stiff-necked, stubborn Israel. Thought if anybody had a lot of reasons to not pray for somebody, it was Samuel. But yet Samuel said, it would be a sin against God for me to not pray for you. And so we know we're supposed to be lifting up our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to be praying for them, but we're tired or we're busy. and, And maybe we just don't do it all that often. That might be a spiritual project left undone for you. Maybe it's leading your family spiritually. You know what Ephesians says. You know what Deuteronomy 6-7 says. It says to teach your children diligently every day as you rise up, as you lay down. And you've meant to set aside time for a family devotion, for family prayer. But at the end of the night, you're tired. You've had a long day. Trying to get everybody to come in the same room at the same time is a challenge, much less to get them to be quiet. you're like... So much work. We'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it next week. Maybe it's time in God's word. And you know that time in God's word is so crucial to your own spiritual health. It's so crucial to your own growth. Psalm 119.11 says, if you want to keep from sinning against God, you need to store up God's word in your heart. It also says in verse 105 that God's word is a lamp to your feet. It leads and guides your way and your path in life. And so, you know, I need to be spending more time in God's Word. I'm going to set my alarm 20 minutes earlier, but you keep hitting snooze. And that project, that spiritual project, it's left undone once again. And I would be willing to bet that most of these things that I've mentioned and other things that are like it, you would say, yes, those things are important. And you probably have some kind of desire to do those things, so why aren't those things getting done in our lives? What are some obstacles to those things happening in our lives if we know that they're so good for us and that God wants us to do those things? Today we're going to look at a story from Scripture about God's people dragging their feet. They knew what God wanted them to do. God had enabled them to be able to do it. And we're going to see several reasons, though, that maybe you and I can connect with as to why they delayed their obedience and it's no small thing to delay your obedience to God, because delayed obedience is disobedience. It says in James four seventeen that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But there's also, and we're going to find out in this story today, there's also a God of great grace and mercy, and He is eager to help those that repent and resolve to do the work that He's called them to do. So the title of our message today is Finish What You've Started. Finish What You've Started. And I want to give you some historical background because we're going to be in the book of Haggai and odds are you haven't been reading that lately or maybe at all and might not know what's going on in the book of Haggai and we're going to eventually get there. So I just want to tell you a little bit about what the students have been going through in Sunday school. We've, we've spent a couple years kind of going through a survey of the Old Testament and we've got to see a lot at, in terms of what has happened in the life of Israel. So right now we're going through Joshua Um, Josh is taking us through Joshua. After Joshua, we have the time of the kings. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have uh, the people wanting a king. And basically they're saying the Lord is not enough. You know, We've got to have a human king like all the the, uh, countries that are around us. We want a king. And so God and Samuel grant them a king. This was a foolish request, but they grant them a king. And they have this united kingdom for a period of time. It starts out with King Saul... He wasn't a very good king. He was very wishy-washy in his faith with God. It went on to King David who did much better, but we know David wasn't perfect either. And then the United Kingdom ended with King Solomon who started well and didn't end so well. All of these guys fell short. They were not perfect leaders. Israel needed a perfect leader and they weren't going to find it in any of these guys. And then we see in Solomon's son, Rehoboam, take some foolish advice from his friends and it causes the king to be split in two. So the 10... Ten of the tribes, um, known as the northern kingdom, they continue to be called Israel, and they occupy the northern area. And then we have the southern kingdom, and there's two tribes that stayed down there, and they were now called Judah. Now, over the course of about 200 years, Israel in the northern kingdom, they had 19 different kings. So for 200 years, 19 different kings that came and went. And do you know what the Bible says about each one of those kings? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a single one of them followed God. Not a single one of them honored him. And so God sends prophets to them because God cares about them. God wants them to wake up and he sends Elijah. He sends Elisha. He sends Amos. He sends other prophets to tell them, hey, Israel, if you don't repent, if you don't follow the Lord, there's going to be judgment and Assyria is going to come and destroy you. They didn't listen and so that's exactly what happened. So many of them were killed, many of them were carried off into captivity, really never to regroup again, and this is about 722 B.C. Now, as history continues over the next 150 years, the southern kingdom of Judah just grew worse and worse. So they had some great kings like Jehoshaphat and Joash and Hezekiah and Josiah, but ultimately they turned to other gods besides the Lord. And so once again, God cares about them. He sends prophets to to tell them, hey, you need to turn to me, you need to repent. He sends Isaiah, he sends Jeremiah to call Judah to repent and to turn to God, but they didn't do it. And so this time God sends Babylon to judge Judah. And Babylon comes in three different waves to attack Judah. Daniel is carried off in the first wave of attacks. Ezekiel is carried off in the second wave, and most likely Jeremiah was carried off in the third and final wave. And here's what we see in the last chapter of 2 Kings. This is the end of the the era of uh, these kings. And Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, they, they destroy everything. So 2 Kings concludes with Nebuchadnezzar tracking down King Zedekiah of Judah. He kills all of his sons before his eyes, and then he gouges out his eyes, so that's the last thing that he would ever see. On top of that, Nebuchadnezzar and his army... They come into Jerusalem, they destroy the walls, they burn everything, they burn down all of the great houses, they steal the gold, the silver, and the bronze from the temple, and then they burn the temple down as well. And there's about 60 leaders that are still left, including some of their priests, and they take them out and they execute them. So this is the end of um, the kingdom of Judah. And it says in Second Kings 25:21, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land this is where Daniel spends the rest of his life. This is where Ezekiel spends the rest of his life and probably Jeremiah also. So all of these prophecies that had been given, they all come true, and Judah had fallen from this great kingdom to this defeated, small, tiny speck of people that was left. So this was a devastating time, and there are false prophets that are even saying during this time, hey, God will bring us back. Like, it'll just be a couple years. It'll be a short period of time. I'm sure he'll forgive us and we'll come back. But Jeremiah said, no, it's going to be 70 years. You're going to be in exile for 70 years away from your homeland and away from everything that you once knew and loved. But God encouraged his people, even though it's going to be a long period of time, you will come back. And so after the exile just like they were destroyed in three waves, God gives them hope and brings them back in three waves. And the first wave is led by a guy named Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel leads a number of people back, about 50,000 people back to Jerusalem. The second wave was Ezra, and probably the third and most familiar wave was Nehemiah. And this is where we're picking up the story with Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is leading a bunch of people back to Jerusalem. And it happens in a miraculous fashion. And so we're going to pick up, if you want to turn there, you can. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So this is picking up the story after all the devastation and all the bad things that have happened of their return back into the land. It says, In the first year of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about Then aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that, was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. So Jeremiah predicts 70 years earlier that this return was going to happen. And 150 years earlier... Um, Isaiah had even named the person that would do it in Isaiah 44:28, and he said, a man named Cyrus is going to make all this happen and rebuild Jerusalem. So the people are seeing these old ancient prophecies being fulfilled before their eyes. And their spirits are stirred. Their, their, their heads are rising up. They are excited about what God is doing. There's probably more excitement among the people than there has been in a long, long time. Because they've been in captivity, and things have been very challenging. And we're not going to read it, but that excitement continues in um, Ezra chapter 3. It says that they march on as one man toward Jerusalem. They build an altar. They do all these sacrifices to God. They observe a feast from the book of the law. These things had not been done in 70 years. This is a super long period of time for none of these things to happen. So you could imagine all the excitement but then they realized, you know, we don't have a temple yet. And the temple was a big deal in the Old Testament because the temple represented God's presence being with the people. And they, wanted, they didn't just want their homeland, they wanted God. They wanted God to be with them as they traveled back home. So they give money to masons and carpenters. They have trees that are shipped in so that they can construct the temple. And they're so excited, they lay the foundation of the temple. The priests come forward. The people are singing together in a loud voice. And this is what they say about God. They said, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And the people are shouting with great joy. And there's even old men that are, that are weeping because they had seen the old temple. And they can tell this one is not going to be the same But still, overall, the mood is just joy and triumph, and people are shouting to God. This is an extremely exciting time. They are ready to obey his voice. They're ready to fulfill his plan. Whatever God wants them to do, they're ready to do it, and they lay that foundation. And maybe you can relate to this. You've been to a retreat. You've been to a camp. You get a gift. You have something great that just happens kind of out of the blue. And, man, things are going well. Like, you're excited. You're excited about life. You're excited about what God is doing. And everything seems to be moving in the right direction. And when things are like that, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's pretty easy to follow God during those times. Things are easy. Things are going well. I'm excited about my faith. There's not much adversity. And praise and obedience is easy during those times. But what about hardships? And what about trials? It gets a little harder, doesn't it? And here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says that these trials come and they grieve us for a time, but they have a purpose. And the purpose of trials is to show whether our faith is genuine or whether it's not. So there is a purpose in trials, but when trials come, a lot of times they derail us. And this is what happens to the people of Judah. They, they have all this joy, they're obeying God, they're excited, but that obedience was getting ready to become delayed obedience, which is disobedience. And we're going to look at two things that led them there. So their first reason for delayed obedience was fear and discouragement. Fear and discouragement. And have you noticed that just because you're excited about something, that doesn't mean that everybody else is going to be excited? In fact, I think it's kind of part of our fleshly nature to be like, you're excited, I'm not. I kind of want to bring you down to my level of unexcitement. We just tend to do that. And I think about people that... um, just do really well. And sadly, one of the groups of people that does really well that comes to my mind is Alabama football. And you know I can't stand Alabama football. A big Tennessee fan. This year we got them. And the world rejoiced besides a few choice Alabama fans. And why was that? It wasn't just Tennessee fans rejoicing. I mean, I was an LSU fan whenever LSU beat Alabama later in the year too. Why was everybody rejoicing when Alabama got beat? Because as much as we hate to admit it, Alabama's good. They're good every year. They always win. They're always on top. Somehow they show up excited to play the game and they usually dominate the other team. Well, the world doesn't put up with that real well, right? When someone's always on top, it's like they've got a target on their back. We're going to knock them off of that pedestal. We want to make sure that we dethrone them. We want to bring them down. And just how people might feel about Alabama, except for a few of you here. I won't name any names. That's how the people felt about Judah. Judah's coming back home. They're excited. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to do all these things. We're fulfilling prophecy. This is awesome. But guess what? There were people that lived there. It had been 70 years, and people moved in. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think you're doing? We're not very excited about you coming back. And so. They were excited about what God was doing, but not everybody was. And If you want to flip over to Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we'll see what happens. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asar king king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and they made them afraid to build And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And it says in verse 24 at the end of the chapter, it says, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Zerubbabel and the other leaders, they were very wise uh, to not let these other people help them out. Because those people were adversaries. They, weren't just, they might have been worshiping God too, but they weren't worshiping God alone. And they remembered, this is what got us in trouble in the first place, worshiping God and worshiping other gods. And we know that that's not what we want to do or what God wants us to do. So they wanted nothing to do with that. They stand up to them, and that's when the adversity starts. What were the two things that caused the people to seize their work and delay their obedience to God? Well, we see it right there in verse 4. Fear and discouragement. And I don't know about you, but those can be the two biggies for me that keep me from doing what God wants me to do, fear and discouragement. Evangelism. Well, what, what, if, they, what if they think what I'm saying is stupid? What if they say something against my God that's really going to bother me? Discouragement, fear, exhortation. Man, I really need to, I need to help this person see the sin in their life. I need to talk with them about it, but man, what if, what if they don't like what I have to say? What if that relationship is damaged and maybe I never get it back? Fear and discouragement. Leadership. Well, what if I spend all this time, all this effort on this event, or this program, or these relationships, or with this group of people, and it doesn't work out the way that I had hoped, and I waste a lot of my time? Fear and discouragement. Fear and discouragement. God has shown me even recently just discouragement in my own life, causing a kind of a subtle form of the spiritual passivity of just, eventually just kind of doing what I'm supposed to do, going through the motions, because I'm supposed to do it, but my heart not being there. And, and not seeing the fruit that I wanted to see or the results, quote unquote, that I wanted to see. And it says in Galatians 6, 9, exactly what I was doing. I was growing weary of doing good. And what's the remedy to that? Well, Galatians 6, 8, 9 tells us it's, it's faith. If you're growing tired of doing good because of maybe fear and discouragement, the remedy to that is faith. Galatians 6, 8, 9 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So what is Paul saying here? He says, keep sowing. Don't quit. Keep it up. If you keep sowing the seed in faith, and trusting that God's going to bring about fruit in His timing and in His way. It's maybe not going to look the way that you want it to, and it's not going to be done in the time that you want it to, but you keep sowing in faith that He's going to take care of the results. And He will. What is that called? Well, that's called faith. At the very least, the fact that you keep sowing is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, and you will reap eternal life whether you see the results that you want to see or not. Another one of my problems and Judah's problems here was was fear of man. What's the remedy of fear of man? Well, it's a different fear. It's to fear God. Everyone has an issue, I think, at some level with fearing man or desiring the praise from man. And the remedy to that is I've got to fear God more. Because as my fear of God goes up, my fear of man goes down. I've been reading through the book of Isaiah lately and um, some great chapters in Isaiah... uh, Isaiah chapter 40 all the way to chapter 48. This would be some great stuff for you to check out sometime this week. But these are just chapters where Isaiah is just magnifying God. He's talking about the greatness of God and how amazing God is where it just puts God up at this level where you're just like, wow, everybody else is just so small. And everything else is just so small in comparison to him. I want to read a couple verses for you out of the very beginning of that section. It's Isaiah 40 verses 12 through 18. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are there enough beasts for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? When we hear things like that from the word about God, we realize, Wow, man is not worthy of my fear in comparison. Man is nothing. Entire nations are a drop in the bucket to God. All the elements of the earth fit in his hand. There's not enough wood on the planet or enough animals to sacrifice to be able to give him the worship that he deserves. He's God and there's no other. And when we're consumed with that truth and the greatness and the glory of God, other fears start to shrink. So a big reason why we can delay our obedience to God is because of fear and because of discouragement, but yet we can overcome those by fearing the right thing, by fearing God and by having faith that he is going to work in his timing, even if it doesn't match up with our timetable. So overcome fear and discouragement with faith and fearing God. Second reason for delayed obedience is selfishness and apathy, selfishness and apathy. You might think, well, you know, what's the big deal if I eventually get around to this? I mean, isn't God going to be okay with that? And I don't think so. And here's a couple reasons why. The first one that comes to my mind is I have kids. I've got three of them. And if I say, hey, child, I would like for you to clean your room. And they say, okay, Dad, I'll get to that. I say, great. I'm assuming we're on the same page here. You know that I don't mean in 2024. I mean, like, pretty soon. And yet I... Uh, I I come back later that day, and I notice it's still a mess. I think, okay, all right, be patient, show grace. Okay, I come back the next day, still not done. End of the week, still not done. I'm getting a little bit more impatient with each passing day, a little bit angrier. And finally, I come back, and in four weeks, a month later, they say, hey, Dad, I cleaned my room. You did. You know what? Great. should have done that like three weeks and six days ago when I asked you to do it. Because there's something about timing too, right? It's not just I obey when I want to. If I'm being fully obedient, I obey in the right time and when I've been asked to obey. And so that's one of the problems where when God asks us to do something, he wants us to do it now. Secondly, whenever we delay, it just gets easier and easier and easier to delay more, doesn't it? I mean, when I walked by those bifold closet doors, I thought, eh, it's been a while. What's a little while longer? I'll just leave them stacked up over there. You know, it doesn't bother me as much as it used to. And that's the problem whenever we delay our obedience. It just gets easier to just kick the can a little further down the road and to keep kicking it. Case in point, we look at Judah. They get scared, they get discouraged by the people around them. And they probably thought, hey, that's it. we'll get through this, we'll get over this, you know, we'll get excited again. And we'll get back in there. We will finish the temple. The foundation's already laid. We're close. I'm sure we'll get right back to it. But do you know how long they delayed? You know how long they just kept kicking the can down the road till it didn't even really matter to them anymore? They waited 16 years. They laid the foundation. They're excited about what they're doing. They get discouraged, and they wait 16 more years before they pick that project back up. They walked by that foundation with nothing on it, didn't do anything about it. The more they walked by it, I would guess, it just became more of kind of like the thing that exists. And eventually it became an eyesore. But that's what happens when we delay our obedience, selfishness and apathy, they start to set in. And that's what was setting in for Judah. And so God's, again, he's a loving God. He's not going to just let them stay in their delayed obedience. He sends two prophets to wake them up. And the two prophets are Haggai and Zechariah. It says in Ezra 5.1, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So he sends these two prophets to say, Hey guys, like, what's going on here? Like, why has it been so long? Like, why, let's, let's get back at it here with this project that I want you to do. And the rest of our time, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1. If you want to flip over there, it's kind of toward the end of the Old Testament, or use your table of contents. But we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, starting in verses 1 through 9. Because God sends Haggai, and he says, here's what I want you to say to the people. This is where they're at. They're spiritually, they've been discouraged. They're spiritually lethargic now. And here's what I want you to say to them. Haggai 1, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I want to stop there for just a second. They're 16 years down the road. They've made the foundation, and they say, eh the time is not quite right. Maybe next year the time will be right. Just give us a little bit more time. Now let me ask you, in the neighborhood that you live in, you see a construction crew come in and they pour a foundation. What are you thinking? You're thinking a house is getting ready to go up. And let's say though that the construction crew leaves and that foundation is there and a couple months go by and you meet the people that own the the property there and you say, the foundation's there. You guys getting ready to build? Yeah, we're kind of waiting for the right time. Oh, okay. All right. It's been raining a lot. I get that. It makes sense. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe in a couple months from now, that structure will start coming up, and then a couple months later, there's still no house. A couple years go by. You're starting to think, this doesn't make any sense. You talk to them 16 years later, that foundation's still there. you would be like, so when are you thinking about building a house here? They're like, yeah, it's just not quite the right time. You think these people are nuts. Like, what are you waiting for? When's the right time? Like, you got the foundation. It used to look sturdy. I don't know about it 16 years later, but it was there. Like, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the right time? And that's what the people are saying 16 years later, so you see where they're at. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little... And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Haggai tells him, instead of occupying yourselves with the things that God wants you to occupy your life with, you have occupied yourselves with the things that you want to do. You're dwelling in these fine, he calls them paneled houses. Very nice houses. You manicure your lawn to the T. You make your house look like HGTV on the inside, and it's all remodeled and really nice, but you are not giving a dime to the temple. You're not giving a speck of your time to rebuild the house of God. The foundation was sitting there ready to go, but now God says it lies in ruins. I would imagine over time that junk was collected there in a place that was supposed to be the place for them to worship and invite God's presence in, now meant nothing to them. It's a pile of junk. That's where they've went in 16 years as they were afraid, discouraged, became apathetic. And it says at the very end of that passage that they busied themselves. They busied themselves with their own house. It wasn't like they weren't doing anything. And I would imagine if I asked any of you how the holidays have been lately, you'd be like, busy. Busy. We're busy. We were busy. You were busy. We're always busy, though, aren't we? But what are we busying ourselves with? It's so easy to stay busy with all the things of your own life and focused on yourself and your own little world that we forget about, we're not supposed to be busy with the things of God. Where is that on our radar Because God wants that to be front and center. But we see, as Haggai describes here, they're taking care of their houses, they're sowing a lot of seed for a big harvest, they're eating plenty of food, they're drinking plenty of drink, and they're making a lot of money. Like, they're doing a lot of stuff. When we delay the things of God in our lives, we will aim for something else. And they're aiming for themselves and making life about them and their own little universe, and how can I make life better for me? Can I make more money? How can I get more stuff? How can I be more comfortable? How can I have more pleasure? How can I make things easier for myself? And that's where we go. We start to take God off the throne of our hearts and our lives. All of a sudden, we rise to the top. We're like, man, me, 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 me. How can I be busy about the things that I want? That is our default, and that's where the people were at. But it came with a price, and that's our next point, consequences for delayed obedience. So if, as they went there, and if we go there, there are consequences for delayed obedience. And God points this out to Haggai. He's like, you, you've been aiming to please yourselves in hopes that it would satisfy you, but it hasn't. At the beginning of verse 9, he says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. And the problem is, when we shrink our world down to, to us, Like things don't work right because we're not worthy of worship and that's not why we were designed. That's not why God put us here. He alone is. And so when we start just investing in ourselves and busying ourselves with the things that we want all the time, it's this endless cycle of hope, despair, hope, despair. Maybe this will be the thing. Ah, uh, it's not. Well, maybe this. I'll try this. No, oh, that's not either. Well, I'm going to try this over. Well, that doesn't make me happy either. I just, I'm on this futile cycle of thinking maybe more investments, more money, more stuff, more comfort, more, 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 more. If I get more, then I'll be happy. But the people were not happy. Like God points it out. He's like, and what's your primary problem? As he goes on toward the end of verse 9, it says, why declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins and each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and on the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. They had put God uh, on the back burner, and what he wanted for their lives, and so they were busy, but it was to no avail. And God was even judging them with a drought, and they didn't realize it. They didn't realize, oh, this is, this is punishment from God because we are so busy with the things that have nothing to do with him and we've let the temple just sit there undone. So, God wants us to be busy, but he wants us to not be busy with things in our own little world for our own glory and our own pleasure, but instead to be busy with the things of God and the things that have eternal significance. There's consequences for delayed obedience. But, There are blessings for repentance and obedience. There are blessings for repentance and obedience. Because God is never done with us. It doesn't matter if we wait 16 years. It doesn't matter how far down the road we kick the can on being obedient. That God is always ready, eager, and willing to take us back when we repent and we turn to Him in faith and obedience. And really that's the process of our sanctification, isn't it? It's a daily battle. It's a daily battle to, to put God on the forefront. It's a daily battle for us to do that. We have the flesh and we have the spirit that are at war with one another, but the great thing is, is no matter how far off track we get, Christ doesn't leave us. He doesn't give up on us. In Ephesians 1.13, it says that upon belief in the Son, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and that God is going to continue to be with you till the day of your death. And so, God never disowns us. He never gets rid of us. As we get stuck in maybe a a bad habit of fear, discouragement, and spiritual apathy, he is ready to welcome us back. Very familiar verses out of Hebrews 4:15 through 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. When we sin, we have a need. We need mercy. We need grace. When we delay our obedience, we sin against God. We, we have a great need, and Jesus, as our high priest, he's ready, eager, and able to meet that need and to forgive and to encourage, and we see that on display in this story as we continue to read in Haggai 1, 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all of the remnant, of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord so we see that their fear gets back in the right spot they obey they fear the Lord then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message I am with you declares the Lord and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shilteel governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we see from the leaders and the higher-ups all the way down to the common folk, they're like, you know what? You're right. They listened to God's voice. They said, we've been off track for a long time. We've delayed this thing for so long. We've had all kinds of excuses, busying ourselves with all kinds of stuff, but we're done with that. We're done with that. We're turning away from focusing on ourselves and we're going to focus on the Lord and what he wants us to do. And they repented and they obeyed the voice of the Lord and their fear got in the right spot. And what were the results? Well, in verse 13, it says that God was with them. You know, they were so busy. They were working so hard. They were making all this money. They're sowing seed to the harvest. They're eating. They're drinking. They're doing all this stuff. But yet God's like, it's to no avail. It's like putting all this money. There's a, he's like, I put a hole in the bottom of your money bag. This is why you're not happy. This is why you keep striving and you're never finding peace. You're never finding joy because you're trying to do it against me. But you know what? Now that you've repented and we're on the same page, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm going to help you in this work. We won't read these, but in, uh, later on in Haggai 2.5, uh, it says that he was going to remain in their midst. He wasn't going to leave them. He was going to encourage them. Be strong. Finish the work. And to cap it off in verse 9, He promises them something even greater than this work. It was important for them to obey in this temporary work that they had. But the Lord tells them there's something even greater that's going to come down the line. And it says in verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And you might be thinking, now wait a second, I thought we just said that the temple of Solomon was was great and then this one was like okay it's a temple but it's not going to be nearly as good and that is what the old men were wailing about earlier but he's talking about something else he's pointing ahead to something much greater than this temporary house that you're trying to build so that God can dwell there that there's going to be something even greater about the temple in the future and we see this in the New Testament there was going to be this peace that was going to be so much greater than just going and worshiping at a place. Jesus said in John 2, 19, that his body was the temple, that his body was going to be destroyed only to rise again so that God's presence would not just dwell in a place somewhere where people would go and worship over there, that there would be worship going on in the people's hearts because the temple is now going to be there through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they could experience worship in their own hearts every day. And even that wasn't the end. There was a greater peace and a greater mercy that was going to come at the end of time. In Revelation 21:22, John says, And I saw no temple in the heavenly city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The great temple of all will be in heaven, and we won't need a building, because God's presence will be everywhere, and we'll be in perfect peace and a perfect relationship with God and in perfect joy. There are great blessings for repentance and obedience. Some of those you'll experience right away. The the people experience that right away, but there are also some blessings for obedience that we're going to experience way down the road. So as we wrap up uh, our time today, I just want to kind of ask, how about you? gave some examples earlier, maybe some things that resonated with you. Maybe there's a conflict or it's like, you know what, I've been kicking the can on that for a long time. I've been delaying obedience on that for a long time. I haven't been praying for people. I haven't been spending time in God's word. I haven't been serving. I haven't been, you name it, fill in the blank. There's all, there's all way, we all have ways where we feel like maybe there's a spiritual project that has been left undone and we need to take a step forward in faith. And today is New Year's Day, 2023. What better way than to say, you know what, today is the day that I'm going to do something about this, no matter how long you've taken. Maybe it's been a couple weeks of delay. Maybe it's been 16 years. But did you notice in this story, the moment that we turn to God and we say, you know what, God, I'm I'm sorry, forgive me that I've been so focused and busying myself with my own little life, with my own little agenda, but I'm done with that, and I'm trusting you, and I'm taking a step of faith toward you, and I want to do what it is you have called me to do today and this year. And I'm going to make a plan, and I'm going to ask for help from you. I'm going to ask for accountability and help from other people. And I want to see what you, want, what you can do and what you want to do in my life in 2023. So I want to encourage you guys to think about that today. We're actually going to have a time where we take communion. And as we take communion, it's a time to think about Christ, what he's done, so that we can have that perfect peace with God in our hearts now and one day in a perfect relationship with him in heaven. But it's also a time, too, to examine yourself. And maybe some of these things you've been busying yourself with. Maybe there's some things where it's like, man, I need to quit being so busy with that. God, forgive me. I've been, I've slowly got off track. I don't know what happened, but forgive me for that. Thank you for the grace that is available for me to be forgiven. And God, put me on a new track. I want to obey you. I want to walk with you by faith. Let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, each one of us knows there's, there's areas where we have some work to do. We have some spiritual projects that have been left undone. And Lord, there are projects all around us. There are house projects. There are other things that we need to do, things that we want to do, things that have to be done. But God, those things, so oftentimes, they can crowd out the things that you want us to do. And the spiritual projects that you have for us. And and maybe we've delayed obedience on some things in our lives for a long time. And God, I just pray that you would convict our hearts of that. And that you would help us to see, Lord, that you are a God of such grace, such patience, such mercy. No matter how long we've delayed, you are right there in our time of need, ready with open arms to accept our repentance and our trust in you, that we would walk with you now. We see that the people in Zerubbabel's day, that as soon as they started trusting you and putting the priority on the things that you wanted them to prioritize, you were immediately with them. And they could be strong and they could be encouraged. So I pray that as we think about some of these things today, God, we wouldn't just beat ourselves up. We wouldn't just think, oh, I failed again. But instead we would say, you know what, Lord, I've, I've struggled with this, I've sinned here. Thank you that you're a God of grace. Thank you that you still love me. You'll never leave me or forsake me, even in my sin, even in my delayed obedience. But Lord, I love you too much to stay where I'm at, and you love me too much to leave me where I'm at. So God, I just pray that you would help us just to, to put our faith in you today, to take a small step forward. And this would be just a great year. We look back in December of 2023 and say, God did some amazing things in my life this year and I'm so thankful that he did. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.